0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey Candace. I think chivalry is alive and well, and we have the knights of middle age and medieval Europe to thank for that. That's right. And,
1: uh, I guess when we're young, we think about, I guess the little girls at least, think about meeting knights in shining armor. And we don't really uh, know a lot, except for, you know, the little that we get in history class, about what actual knights in the Middle Ages were like.
0: And whether or not their armor was, in fact, shiny. And after doing a little bit of research, I'm inclined to think it, it may have been, you know... Buffed and polished, but I don't think it was that shiny. Yeah, probably not if they were busy in battle and didn't get to clean it that often. (laughs) They've got a lot going on. They've got got their squires, sure, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, knights, it's not just the stuff of literature. They were real medieval warriors and they began their military training very young. And the word knight actually comes from the Anglo Saxon term for boy. And knighthood and the system of becoming a knight actually began under the feudal system, which was established by Charlemagne in the 8th century.
1: That's right. And knights, especially early on, but later, not necessarily, they, they had land that they held from, uh, that lords would sort of lease to them, and they were responsible for. In order to get dubbed a knight, usually you are the son of a knight or a lord. And so they weren't necessarily nobility, per se, but they were pretty respected, and especially when we talk about the code of chivalry that we will in a second, just the idea that they were respected people. And, you know, um, if you ever read Canterbury Tales, like most people do in, in high school, the prologue actually lists the knight first because he was so respected.
0: Right. And part of the reason for that was that it was not a position that you inherited. It was something that you had to work for. You and- earned, Yeah. And just to give you a little bit of background on knighthood and the reason that knights were so important, um, during Charlemagne's reign, essentially, there was a bunch of land. And after the Roman Empire fell, Western Europe essentially had no countries and no real organization, just huge parcels of land. And there was a lot of fighting over territories, but there was nothing really productive in place to control them and and to really ration it out and to give order and to create agriculture. Cultural mainstays. And so Charlemagne uh, instituted feudalism. And he had this patch of land that sort of went from northern Spain to Italy and then France and Germany and Poland. And he would dole out portions of land to nobles. And in exchange, they would agree to be loyal to him and to offer him protection. Or he could give land to knights in exchange for their military service. And knights who lived on land really had a good deal going, whether Mm -hmm. they lived on land owned by the king or by a noble in exchange for food, clothing, and shelter. They would, you know, provide military service when it was necessary and they also protected the serfs who were underneath them as well as the men who were over them. And the serfs were important because these were the people who were growing the food that fed them. So in lieu of having an actual centralized government, this was a pretty good system and everyone was taken care of. So knighthood was important and you really did feel like you were part of a, a bigger structure and that you were important to your your, your land or your fife.
1: That's right. And knights actually made out pretty well. Um, I guess we're, you're going to talk about that later with the terms, in terms of the knights templar. But actually, one thing that struck me was that even though knights are known as professional warriors, there was this thing called scootage where, um, knights could actually send out others to do their fighting for them. I guess they were just too happy back in, in Europe with their lands that they were running and making a pretty good living at. But if you want to go back to, um, where uh, boys, how boys became knights. It actually started uh, about the age of seven. Beforehand, they would be raised by their moms in, in the household. But by the age of seven, they officially became a page. They would learn horsemanship, reading, writing, uh, religion, uh, even falconry, which was popular at the time.
0: Yeah, so they got their hunting skills. They got all their schooling skills down. And it was sort of cute. I'm sure it wasn't exactly cute back then, but it's cute to me to read about it. They would use wooden swords and lances to practice combat. So. Yeah. Isn't that just kind of adorable, little page? Yeah, Okay. Little cute little page boy haircut out there with his wooden sword. <laughs> it's gonna be a big strong knight one day. Sure. I think it's sweet. Anyway, once they turned 14, the page became an esquire, or squire. And um, in order to mark this passage, there was a religious ceremony, and he would take a consecrated sword, and he would promise to use it for honorable purposes. And this is all very sword in the stone to me. You know, oh, I, sure, can, yeah. I can see this happening, um, little warts, and taking mm-hmm. his sword from the stone.
1: And the squire is actually—I'm such a literary geek— but uh, the squire is actually the second one, I believe, listed in the Canterbury Tales prologue, and she just goes, goes to show how— um Using this this uh, system of the page to the squire to the knight is it was very respected.
0: Yeah, and, and very much instilled in, yeah. in the common mentality and how people conceived of the order of their lands. So the squire had a couple of different types of positions that he could fill during his training. And um, in addition to these positions, he was learning social etiquette and behavior as well as martial arts. And um, there are I've got to tell you guys about these positions because they just they tickle me. Uh, A couple in particular. There was a squire of body who was a personal servant to a knight or a lady. The squire of the chamber, also the chamberlain, was another name for that. And he attended to the rooms in a castle. This is one of my favorites. The table or carving squire was in charge of carving meat and waiting (laughs) on banquet tables. So really, sort of a... A waiter yeah. it's what it sounds like to kind, me. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of sort of the fraternity hazing sort of situation. Ah, <laughs> yes, I'll have to ask Stuart about that one later. Oh, okay. Um, Squire of Wines, who managed the wine cellar. Not a bad position, um, at least to me. Let's see. <laughs> Squire of Pantry, who stocked the pantry, managed supplies for the home. Squire of Arms, who maintained armor and weapons. And the Squire of Honor, who helped in ceremonies And feasts. And if you're like me, you're thinking that some sound a little bit more prestigious than others. So I'm wondering, honestly, if there was some sort of ranking system or depending on how well they performed as pages that determined whether they got to be a squire of body or... Or a meat squire. Yeah, that's true. Although I
1: think no matter what um, position you were at, you were kind of can't wait until uh, you turned 21. And uh, at the time, it wasn't about alcohol, but about being dubbed a knight. This was about the time that you would sometimes actually, if say, uh, squires, if there was a war going on and they went to go fight, they they would serve their um their knight in battle. And if they did something particularly heroic, they could be actually dubbed on um on the battlefield. But usually, uh, once a knight turned 21 back at home, they would. Uh, they would be dubbed officially in sort of this elaborate ceremony. It, it often accompanied another big ceremony, like a wedding.
0: It or w- even, I think, Christmas or Easter or sure. another big feast day.
1: Yeah, and so um, it, it would be a major part of it. And uh, you can tell by the fact that they had these this ritual they went through. The night before, the, uh, the boy would go have a ritual bath. They would have an all-night prayer vigil. And then the next day, when they went to go get dubbed, they would have to swear this oath uh, where they were devoted to the church. They were loyal
0: to their lord. They defended a, la- a lady, et cetera, et cetera. And some of these other et cetera's, yeah. again, I just – it's just so fun reading about night history, you know, whether you were a meat squire or, or, <laughs> or whatever. Parts of this oath were really humorous, or at least to me today. They had to – um In addition to defending ladies and being loyal to their lords and to the church, they had to be brave. They had to promise that they were going to take off their armor only when they were sleeping. And they would vow never to avoid danger because they were afraid. They had to be on time, which is just good sense, really. And (laughs) another one is that whenever the knight returned home, he would have to share and tell about his escapades. And Talk about being a literary geek. This got the wheels (laughs) in my mind turning. I was like, huh, well I wonder if this is why the, you know, oral tradition of, of night stories is so alive and well. There must have been a lot of night stories going around if you were required to tell someone about it. Yeah, and another one I found interesting, actually, in the little
1: details, was that if a knight was taken prisoner, he would have to surrender peaceably after he was really taken, and he wouldn't be allowed to fight his captors again until he got their permission, which I found really interesting. You would expect, you know, if you were taken prisoner, that you would try your best to fight your way out of right. it. But there's an interesting code, uh, that, that this o- this oath that they had to take.
0: And you can imagine if every single knight is good enough to uphold the code, then things must have been you know, pretty chivalrous around there and people must have, you know, been really proper and, and kind to one, one another. But it seems like every now and then there's there's a bad apple that gets through and, and bad knights must have come along and done things like stolen another's armor or sure. challenged him to a duel and it was sort of two-on-one instead of, you know, one-on-one on one as the action was supposed to be. Yeah.
1: So. yeah, and it's interesting, I mean, most people associate uh, this whole oath with what is now known as chivalry. I mean, if you don't sort of just talk about how uh, opening up a car door is chivalrous. Yeah. But actually, the term origi- originally uh, came back to just meaning good horsemanship, which I found really interesting. Another source I found said that it meant just plain tenure of land at all. And that sort of made sense to me in terms of the word gentleman, which, uh, you know, has a similar uh, evolution in how we think of, it, uh, think of it today. You know, gentlemen are people who open doors for ladies. But back then, uh, uh, a gentleman was just sort of someone who owned land or property. So it's just interesting to look at the evolution of what these terms
0: mean today and what they meant back then. Definitely. I think that the, the etymology of, of the words um definitely sheds light on what the knights did and how the tradition continues today even though there aren't exactly medieval warriors prancing around modern day England. But at this point the knight was officially called a sir and he could own land and hire his own soldiers and you may be wondering, well, what did a knight do when there weren't any battles to fight in? And the answer is pretty simple. They participated in tournaments so that their skills didn't go to waste. And That's right. And, um, one of my favorite, I think, is joust. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Definitely. Um, I'm from Maryland, in case you didn't know, and jousting is actually our official sport. I don't know how that <laughs> happened, but, <laughs> but it's very bizarre, but I mean, I love it. And jousting, if you've ever seen something like a knight's tale, obviously, uh, uh, with Heath Ledger. It was sort of, a, was, it was a one-on-one thing where knights would go up against each other mounted on horses and they would basically rush at each other with long, dull-headed lances. And so they would keep them out in front of them so that it would, they would try to hit the other person as they went by. And, uh, you win about through, uh, about three lances and, uh, you would get points based on if you broke your lance on the other person, where it hit, et cetera. And after three lances, they would get off and, and start fighting if they wanted to with swords, actually.
0: And the church, I guess, was okay with jousting because it was not quite as dangerous as another popular tournament, and that was the melee. And that was sort of a free-for-all battle. Imagine a really big group of knights, and um, you're in this big huddle of knights, and you eyeball a competitor. You choose one other person you start fighting. Once you defeat that person, he's down. Either he's down dead or he's down passed out. You move on to the next person. So it's a one-on-one fight, but in the context of a larger group. And the premise is Last Man Standing wins. And the church really did not like this one because a lot of people really did die. And I just, you know, for the sake of entertainment, it just seemed mm-hmm. rather controversial. So, and also, you know, from my modern perspective, it doesn't seem very chivalrous to perform uh, <laughs> like this in front of a lady you were trying to impress by killing other people. That's alas, I have an, an anachronistic point of view. So I can see that. Although,
1: um, one advantage to fighting these games is that you could make a lot of money. That was one motivation that they had, in, in addition to like getting honor and, and practicing your skills. But they could actually get money by the fact that, at least in jousting, uh, when someone lost, they had to turn over their horse and their armor to the winner. And they could buy back uh, those things from the winner. And so the
0: if you were a common When you were good at jousting, you could make a good load of money. And that was good news because all of your nightly accoutrements were rather expensive, particularly armor. And when armor originated, it was um, back in ancient Rome, and they actually used leather and leather was very expensive to use you know, as a full body protective covering but it was malleable so it was really cool because you could shape it and then you boil it in water or oil and it hardens in place and you've got something that's very resistant to all sorts of points and tips and piercings coming at you and um, so the middle aged knights used leather as armor and then it continued to evolve into um, chain mail for instance, that was another Roman idea originally and these were small interwoven steel rings and there were two predominant types, one was butted mail where the ring were really really close together and the other was riveted mail where the rings were actually connected with rivets and this was cheaper than armor but unlike armor and leather armor it was really vulnerable to piercings and it was pretty heavy too and it's funny to look back at part of the training for becoming a knight was that you would practice walking around wearing chain mail so your really? body could get used to the weight sort mm-hmm. of like today I think that there's some military personnel who train with their backpacks on and their gear or even you know, if you're going to hike the Appalachian Trail you okay. practice walking around with your pack so you get used to the weights. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: And it's interesting to see how armor changes as um weapons change, as they advance, because you know, you look at weather uh sorry, leather and um and chainmail like you were saying, Candace, and they are, you know, they do protect against cuts and scrapes, but when, you know, people started developing crossbows, for instance, this would not protect them. And so they they had to start turning to more solid metal pieces of armor. And so, you know, these solid metal pieces, they're so difficult sometimes. I heard that they weighed uh, up to 60 pounds. They were super hot. Uh, they would often take an hour to put on need help to do that on top of it. As weapons advanced even further, you see uh, the introduction of gunpowder. They finally made its way from, from Asia to Europe. And once that was introduced,
0: it was like, what's the point anymore? Armor's yeah. <laughs> a moot point. Though. Yeah. But the funny thing about armor, too, is that it really didn't protect your entire body. So you had to wear team especially in places like your underarms and where your joints came together, like your knees, so that you had some protection there because um, the plates didn't fit that tightly. And contrary to popular belief, it wasn't too hard to move around in. Like, you weren't stiff. It was just really heavy. That would have been the challenge. I can see that, yeah. And so knights continued to serve, you know, throughout the Middle Ages and throughout medieval Europe, you know, under the feudal system. And then they actually served um, a more, I guess, national or, or international, really, since Europe at this point was breaking apart into different nations, purpose, and that was protecting pilgrims who were traveling to the Holy Land during the Crusade and caring for sick pilgrims and, um, these are, are groups, like the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitallers and the Teutonic Knights. These still exist today as charitable societies. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the most beloved orders of knights was actually the Templar,
1: as Candice mentioned. And this is one, unlike the others, that doesn't exist today. And it was a really interesting story because they were beloved at the time. To give you some background on it, they were founded about the 1100s, like you said, to protect pilgrims going to the Holy Land at the time. Um, and if you listen to our Crusades podcast, you know more about why they were doing that. So what was interesting about the, this order and other orders like it was that it was both a military uh sort of purpose and they were religious men. It was basically a religious order where they were monks and they were supposed to live a modest life. And they didn't always do that. They they, like other orders, got proud and, and greedy. And so there was lots of controversy around them all the time. But this particular order got accused in the early 14th century I believe of um, lots of abuses in terms of um, both monetary abuses like they were mishandling charity that they got etc cetera, etc cetera. but people were also upset that they were um, heretics that they weren't holding mass correctly that they were actually worshiping idols and there was homosexual behavior going on between them as well, uh, which the church would not have liked. So at this time it was actually the King, King Philip the fourth of France who really had, um, had his eye out on, on them and wanted them to be taken out. And, um, Recent documents released by the Vatican, actually a couple of years ago, it's very interesting, show that the the Pope at the time actually absolved them of their charges and, and didn't he didn't believe that they were heretics. But the King Philip of of France, um, supposedly owed them a lot of money and that's really why they wanted him they wanted he wanted the whole order gone and so they were tried they were tortured and they were eventually burned at the stake and it's really sad mysterious story
0: yeah that is it's really haunting especially if you think about all the hard work that goes into becoming a knight and mm-hmm. you know how you do vow to uphold this oath and i'm sure that once you Sort of develop into your own separate order of knights. You have an entirely different code of ethics that you're also upholding. So it seems like you would have to be really committed to uphold all of these principles. And I'm sure it must have been very hard on the group when they were, when they were taken apart and, you know, even harder when they were executed. Yeah. But that's another point. So today, um, if you're not a member of one of the charity groups that originated in these different orders of knights, you might be able to attain knighthood by two different means, one of which, is a martial arts achievement. And almost like if you were to practice uh, karate or another form of martial arts that originated in um, Asia, you'd be given different colors of, of belts for the level sure. of um, martial arts that that you attain. And the same is true in different schools around England, where um, and around other parts of Europe, too, where you can earn recognition for demonstrations, and you may be asked to perform at different fairs and festivals to show your prowess. And the other way you can become a knight is a member of royalty bestows that honor upon you. And it's so fun uh, to see the different people who come up for knighthood, be they, um, oh gosh, uh, someone who's made a contribution to the business world, mm-hmm. or the political world, or the music world, like Sir Elton John. John. Yeah. I, I think he's my favorite. Not if I can say oh, that. I gotta say I'm going to show Card them. Oh really? He's my favorite. Yeah. Gosh. I'm going to stick up for Elton with this. Okay. You know, little kicky sunglasses and earring. <laughs> Gosh, I just love him.
1: Yeah. So, and they're a member of the Order of the Garter, which I found really interesting. That this was uh, one of the original orders. It was established in, at least in 1346. Uh, you might be wondering why they're called the Order of the Garter. It is an interesting name. And one source I found said that uh, the theory is that Edward III who started the Order, uh, was really interested in the um, Arthur's uh, Round Table and that whole legend, he wanted to revive it. And he chose the name because of an embarrassing inc- incident where Edward was at a party, and he was dancing with a girl, and the girl actually lost her garter and it fell on the floor. And in order to quell the sort of embarrassment, he put it on his leg, and he said, shame to him who thinks evil of it. So this sort of idea, you know, don't think evil of others, um, he was really proud of, and that's why he named it the Order of the Garter.
0: Oh, how about that? That's a sweet story. Yeah, I like that. So clearly, there are a lot of different tales and legends surrounding the Order of Knights and many more knights specifically for you to learn about. So be sure to read all about knights and castles and maybe even article on dragons on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com.